Good evening, I'm Zoe and I'm the youth pastor here at Christchurch and I'm really excited to be digging into this question with you today, how can we trust the Bible? This is the second of a few big questions that we're going to be addressing and I think it's a really foundational one because how we answer this will determine the way we approach other questions. So stay tuned, keep watching and hopefully it will give you some confidence in trusting the Bible for your life. First, the question, how can you trust the Bible? There's two sides to that, I think, and there's trusting the Bible intellectually. So knowing exactly how our Bible is reliable and accurate. And there's also trusting it personally, asking the question, how does the Bible connect to my life, my story? How can I throw my whole weight behind this, this book? And those two things are, are what we're going to touch on this evening. But first, a short story about me, which is a little bit exposing, but hopefully it will help illustrate a point I want to make before we dig in. So when I was a teenager, I went to a really strong uh, evangelical Bible loving church and I was part of this great youth group and everyone brought their Bibles with them to youth. And we were in the Bible all the time, highlighting it. All the Bibles look so like well-worn. It was just really lifted up as a high value that we love the Bible. And me as keen little Zoe I wanted to be seen as someone who like went the extra mile who really loved their bible who you know was the most kind of sold out and knew the bible the most in the youth group classic and what I did to shortcut that process with my brand new youth bible highlighted bits put some bookmarks in but it still wasn't enough so I had this brainwave had this great idea why don't I dip my bible in the bath so that all the pages would become crinkly and that the spine would get all weathered and the bible would double in size and I did this <laughs> and it did achieve a, the look of a very well-worn well-loved bible with no time at all but it did mean that for the rest of I don't know, my teenage years when I used that Bible, I was forever trying to peel pages back and tearing them. Why do I tell you that story other than it being a bit silly? But I think it actually illustrates how much times have changed. That was only 10, 15 years ago. And yet, I don't think there's anyone in my youth group who will be dipping their Bible in the bath to look like the most keen, loving person of the Bible. Our culture has become more individualistic, more inclined to follow what speaks to ourselves rather than looking outwards to a text such as the Bible to direct our lives. There's a presupposition before even trusting the Bible personally. I think there's a question of why should we even care about the Bible? Karl Barth famously said that God's being is in his acts. God's being is in his acts. The way we know God is by knowing how he acts in the world. And this is the task of theology. There are four sources of theology, if you want to think about them as four legs of a chair. And the first source of theology is scripture. And it's the first authority and it contains the measure by which the other sources are tested. The second um, source of theology is tradition, so the passing on of what's gone before, the succession of history. The third source is reason, so logical arguments, apologetics, and the fourth is personal experience, so your personal encounters of God becoming real to you. The living core of the Christian faith is revealed in scripture. It's illuminated by tradition, is vivified in personal experience and confirmed by reason. Scripture is primary though, 
revealing that the word of God is necessary for our salvation. The primary way we know how our God acts and the primary way we know God, who we worship and follow, is through the scriptures. Therefore, to deconstruct, to cut out or to abandon scripture altogether as, as if it's not necessary to your faith is like trying to swim with one hand behind your back or trying to sit on that chair with one leg removed. And yet we're at this key time, I think, in our culture where the veracity of scripture is being tested and challenged. In the past, it was assumed that if you called yourself a Christian, you believed in biblical authority. But, Matt, but now we must all answer how much authority this book holds in our lives. I want you to feel confident that you can trust the Bible intellectually and personally, and for you to be really understanding of why we should care about the Bible. Because if we take the Bible away, our faith becomes much more watered down. Therefore, let's begin. How can we trust the Bible intellectually? We need to ask ourselves, how do we know we have an accurate copy of the Bible? That is the task of the science of textual criticism. Okay, so textual criticism works by comparing ancient manuscripts to discover the original wording. Basically, the more copies of a manuscript there are, and the closer they are to the date of the original manuscript, the more confident we can be. For example, Herodotus and Thucydides were ancient historians who wrote in the 5th century BC. Now the earliest copies we have of their writings are from around 900 AD, so there's more than a 1300 year gap, and we only have 8 copies of their writings. Yet no classical scholar would doubt that these writings have come down to us in a form that's true to their original copies. And this is the case with many other ancient works as well. For example, Livy's Roman History, 900 year gap, with 20 copies. Caesar's Gallic War, 950 year gap, with 9 to 10 copies. And Tacitus, a thousand year gap, with just 20 copies. And then we come to the New Testament, and what we see here is that the time gap is significantly shorter. It was written between 40 to 100 AD, and the earliest manuscript was written as early as 130 AD, and there are 5,309 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin, and 9,300 others, making the New Testament totally unique amongst other ancient books. In the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone amongst ancient prose writings. So we can see that our Bible is extremely accurate. We don't have changed copies. We have a reliable and trustworthy copy of the original scriptures. So we know it's accurate, but how do we know it's true? How do we know that actually what we've got in our hands is the truth, it is truthfully written? Well, let's look at some evidence. Firstly, if I asked you to conspire with a friend to completely make up a religion and to go about trying to spread that religion to your friends, how would you go about it? Moreover, why would you do this? What could you possibly gain through making up a religion that you knew was false? Well, you could gain money, power, uh, fame. Those are some definite fruits of a very successful religion. But what if actually in making it up and trying to spread it, instead of gaining all those things, you actually were uh, scorned by your friends, people thought you were crazy, in fact you were thrown in prison, and you were facing death for this religion that you had made up? Why would you continue? There would be no reason to. And this is a really good piece of evidence to, to apply to the disciples. They had no possible motivation to spread a religion that they knew was false. 
what we can conclude, therefore, is that the disciples' ardent desire to share and spread the gospel reflects that they really did see Jesus resurrected and they really did realise that he was the son of God and that everything had changed. If we look here, we can see that actually all of the disciples other than John um, reportedly were martyred for their faith in some quite brutal ways. Some of them you can see have, they can't quite test or confirm the exact way they died but there were numerous accounts of early christians being killed for this faith which is a really sober thing to sit with moreover let's think about how the earliest christians dealt with scripture did they trust it we can actually see that they a hundred percent did here we have what is believed to be the earliest creed a creed is the, the summary of the most important beliefs. And here in First Corinthians, we have one that historians and scholars believe dates back to two to five years after Jesus's resurrection. This is what the disciples were spreading around and emphasizing. Let's read it. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. The earliest Christians not only believed and trusted scripture, but they used scripture to back up and support their faith. They knew the Old Testament really well and they use their faith to continue to spread the good news of the gospel. There are other ways to see the truthfulness in the fact that the disciples were uh, not just brushing over details when reporting back to the gospel writers, etc. And one such thing is called the criteria of embarrassment. So the, the disciples allow to be recorded some really embarrassing and um, stuff that you wouldn't want to share unless it was actually true. For example, their abandoning and denying Jesus. They also were not afraid to break convention by including and in fact emphasizing the testimony of the women who run to the tomb first to find Jesus. In this time, women were not reliable witnesses. They would not have been used in court. But the fact that the women's story and voices is included within the scriptures just points to the fact that they're not making this up. They really do believe and know that Jesus is risen. So that is just a handful of evidence of how we know that actually what is written down is truthful. It's not just made up, even if it is just accurate. It's really, really truthful. And there's so much more you can dig into this to confirm the truthfulness of the accounts. Amy or Ewing has written a great book exactly on some of the very detailed things that you just couldn't make up if you were if you were writing a religion. OK, so what about contradictions? Contradictions is something uh, progressives and other faiths often say, oh, there's tons of contradictions in the Bible. And that is something we need to explore. Surely, yes, if there are lots of contradictions that would sow distrust and make you feel like the Bible is full of errors and therefore hard to trust. Let's look at one contradiction that um, people of other faiths often point out as why you shouldn't trust the Bible. It has to do with donkeys. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, how many donkeys were there? Was it two or one? In Mark, Luke and John, uh, they mentioned one donkey. You can see the excerpts here. But in Matthew, he goes into great detail to emphasise that there were two donkeys, a colt 
and a donkey. So what's going on here? How come one gospel says that there's two and three just mention one? We'll dig into this by thinking a little bit about eyewitness testimony. Jay Warner Wallace, a homicide detective, says this. You can tell eyewitnesses are telling the truth when their stories differ. Witnesses seldom agree on every detail. In fact, when two people agree on every detail, that makes me more doubtful and suspicious of their story, as it might mean they have conferred or ca contaminated evidence. Reliable eyewitnesses disagree along the way. Okay, so that's good to know that, in fact, if there was no contradictions in the entire Bible, that might be more indication that it had been doctored in some way. But still, what are we supposed to do with whether there was one donkey or two donkeys? Surely that sows distrust and makes us wonder how we can trust the Bible. I think it's really important to actually dig a little bit deeper here. Matthew, when we look at context and the entirety of his book, his gospel that he wrote, he was writing to a primarily Jewish audience and he includes the most Old Testament scripture in his gospel because he really wants to confirm that Jesus is the Jewish, the chosen Messiah. Matthew was intent on looking for the second donkey because he was so vested in this prophecy that he quotes in his passage from Zephaniah. You can see that between verse four and five. He is looking for that second donkey because he knows the scriptures, because he knows the prophecy. Whereas the three other gospel writers, Mark, Luke and John, they are all writing and emphasising different things. For example, Mark is writing to a broader Roman audience. And so his gospel is actually very uh, pacey, it's very quick. It doesn't include nearly uh, as much Old Testament prophecy because he knows that won't ring as important to the Roman context. Luke was an immaculate historian, which is why his book is the longest by far of the Gospels. And John, he was concerned with the theological implications of Jesus. And so he spends a lot of time writing very spiritually about who Jesus is. So why do these Gospels mention just one donkey? There's a few reasons. It could be that just because they mention one does not mean there wasn't two. They might have just seen it as a unnecessary detail to add. It could also be that they just simply did not see a donkey or that the eyewitnesses that they're using to write this passage did not see, but Matthews did. So just because one donkey is mentioned does not mean that there was not actually two. And so we can take these contradictions and be confident that actually if you do some digging and piece things together and look at the broader context and the authors, contradictions don't mean that we have to distrust the Bible and throw it out. In fact, it kind of adds to the truthfulness if we lean back on the homicide detective story that when there are multiple witnesses, you get different sides of the picture, which actually enriches us and our view of the Bible. So as Christians, we can either face contradictions that we stumble across in scripture and therefore believe the Bible is fragile and throw it out, or we can do digging, do a bit more homework and see the wider picture. So looking at scripture, we can now hopefully be confident that it's accurate and that it's truthful. But there is a huge question here. What makes the Bible different from any other historically accurate and truthful book? The Bible is a book, or more accurately, it's a collection of books. The word Bible comes from a Latin word, Biblia, which means books or library of books. It's divided into two main sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is the larger of the two and includes what was written before Jesus lived. The New Testament is what was written afterwards. 
Together, the Old and the New Testament were written over a span of around 1,600 years by at least 40 different authors. Kings, scholars, tax collectors, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, historians, teachers, prophets, and doctors. They wrote different types of literature, like history, poetry, prophecy, and letters. The Bible is 100% the work of human authors, but Christians believe it's also 100% inspired by God. So how can that be? One of the greatest English architects, Sir Christopher Wren, is best known for building St. Paul's Cathedral in London. He was the chief architect on the project, which took about 36 years to finish. As the architect, he carefully planned where each stone should go. And even though he never laid a stone himself, no one would dispute the fact that he built it. Sir Christopher Wren was the inspiration behind it all. In a similar way, with the Bible, there are many different writers, but one architect, one inspiration behind it all, God himself. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, all scripture, referring to the Bible, is God-breathed. In other words, all scripture is inspired by God. The Bible isn't a random collection of writings. It's God's message of love to the world. If we remember that quote from the beginning, that God's being is in his acts, and if we believe and know that Jesus is the embodiment of God on earth, then the way Jesus uses scripture will be a huge important factor for us in our love and lifting up of scripture. And Jesus, throughout the Bible, which we now know is accurately written and accurately uh, depicted and truthfully written down, uses the Bible as an ultimate authority, uses scripture to battle temptation and put the devil in its place, to debate the Pharisees, to promise the Holy Spirit looking forwards. He confirms Old Testament prophecies so many times. And as I mentioned, Matthew is the one who really digs into that and goes through almost all of them. So do go and check out Matthew if you want to see how many times Jesus uses Old Testament scripture to confirm himself. And he points to himself as the Messiah. So Jesus believes scripture is the word of God. That should fill us with some real joy and excitement. Okay, so maybe your trust is growing, that the Bible is accurate, that it's truthful, that it's God's word. But then what? What happens when you stumble onto a passage that feels really difficult and really tricky? And there are difficult and hard passages in the Bible. I don't have enough time to go into them, and I know we'll be addressing some uh, like hot topics in the um, future Big Question Sundays. So do hold on to that. But what I will say is, the Bible does not approve of everything it records, nor is everything it records a command to follow. When reading this, the Bible, this ancient, beautiful, God-inspired, God-breathed book, we need to know the difference between descriptive and prescriptive passages. We need to understand context. We need to understand genre. And we need to also not be afraid that something that we come across that feels uncomfortable means that it's no longer God's word. Let's go in trusting that we can find God even in the hardest passages. To end this talk, I'd love to just emphasize to you that the Bible is not fragile. It can really take your questions. It can take a really close and detailed examination. It's important for us to wrestle with the difficult bits. It's important to read it in a group, not just in our own echo chambers. And that's why small groups are really important. So do get involved in a small group because that's actually where we chew over scripture and hear other people's opinions and dig into it more. And actually the more you dig into it, the more you grow to love it and the more you grow to care about it.
it's important for you to write down your questions when they come up, feed them back. I know Nicola really loves to hear them and we really do want to listen to you and your questions to address in future Big Question Sundays. Hopefully you can see that there are really good reasons to trust the Bible intellectually and personally. The Bible is accurate, the Bible is truthful, the Bible is God's word, and the Bible is the primary way we get to know and understand and be in relationship with this God that we follow. The Bible is the primary way that we let God be the authority in our lives and not just have an idol of self-faith where we just do and, and follow what speaks to us in the moment. I hope that helps and I hope that your love for the Bible will grow and grow.